0: Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning services to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore the Christian faith, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into the Word of God. So listen in as we jump into what the Lord has for us today.
1: If you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles, we're opening to the book of Ezra, it's an Old Testament book. It's in the, kind of the history category of, uh, of Scripture. So it's um, the, the ones and twos or the first and seconds. You got first, first and second Samuel, first, and second Kings, first, and second Chronicles, then Ezra on the other side. It's Nehemiah. Um, this morning, I, I promised you guys last week that I would have pictures of the new building. And so I wanted to start by going there just real quick and share a couple of the pictures that I went took some pictures of the new building, forget the stuff in the middle, that's just storage right now, but you can see the kids' building, go back to that one real quick, I'm sorry, uh, this is kids' building, this is where our, our kindergarten and up are going to be, and so this is awesome, we're going to have some, some dividers there to make that room uh, work out for us, and then uh, fast forward, we've got the student building, we've built a, a deck on the back side, I can just already see barbecues and things happening back there, hopefully nothing gets burned down, the um, And then the student building there uh, that used to be kind of an office location and cleared it out. And it's going to be a great. We've got uh, stuff that's going to go in there, ping pong tables and couches. This is the foyer. Uh, Many of you have been inside. You remember walls that didn't look like this and floors that didn't look like that. And uh, now it looks great. Um, Keep going a little farther. Another picture of that going down the hallway to kids ministry or to preschool stuff. And then we've got mom and baby room, nursing room. And then the rainbow room, I think, is next. Yes, the rainbow room, and then we've got the worship area for kids, and then we've got a sunshine room on the other side of that. Oh, it's so great. So awesome. And I didn't know that Miss Rachel was going to be here, but Miss Rachel Rojas has been running the teams that she's had two contractor groups running, a paint crew running. She was there painting Friday. She's there painting yesterday. I'm pretty sure she's going to be there painting today. So big round of applause for her and her teams that have been doing that. It is so great. It, I, I didn't even go upstairs to take pictures of the office. I didn't think y'all would care about that too much. But that space is awesome as well. Uh, as I've said earlier, uh, and so yes, three weeks. We've got this week, next week, and then the following week, October 1st, will be our last Sunday here. And then we, we move to the new building on October 8th. That'll be our launch, uh, our, our kind of soft launch. And then open, uh, kind of grand opening is December the 8th, and so or December the 3rd. Uh, and so that's kind of our schedule between now and then. So it's exciting. So many fun things. Uh, that are happening. Thank you guys for the prayers and just sticking with it. Uh, it's going to be awesome. It really is going to be awesome. I, I said earlier today or earlier that today is a little bit different and that we're not starting a brand new series. This is kind of the, the point five. It's getting us to the series, the new series called Next, uh, where we'll look through the book of e- or Nehemiah. Uh, but today we're going to work through the book of Ezra. And it really it cracks me up as kind of thought about it this uh, this mo- or this past week. You know, there, over the summer, we did 15 weeks through the 16 chapters of the book of Romans. So we sped through the book of Romans. And then we slowed down right at the beginning of fall. We did six weeks on two verses in Ephesians. And now we're going to do 10 chapters in one morning. So buckle up. We've got lunches coming in for y'all in just a minute. Uh, it'll be great. Now we're, we're going to really, this is going to be kind of a survey of the book of Ezra, kind of getting us, what are the major themes, the key things that are happening in the book of Ezra that kind of get us to the book of Nehemiah, which, like I said, we'll work through over the next several weeks together. And so it is going to be a little different. Let's start by just asking the Lord to bless us. Siri, she likes to talk to me when I'm in the middle of a sermon. So, uh, let's pray before we jump in. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for all that you're doing, all that you've done. God, we thank you for pictures that remind us of, of, of new things that you have for us. And as we talk about when you're doing something new, we are set, we sit on the edge of something new for this congregation. And we're so excited about that. And God, I pray that this morning as we, as we work through this book of Ezra, this, this story of what you did with your people, God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, you would open our ears and our eyes to see, to hear the beauty of your word. To take it in, God, and that it would work in our hearts and transform our minds and our, and our hearts to be more like you. And we love you. We thank you that you loved us first. You love us best. You love us always. And that your love never fails. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you're following along and you worship God, the first thing that I want to I point out, and we're going to work through multiple different passages throughout the book of Ezra, but the first thing that I want to point out is this that, that we can rest confident in God's word. And for that, I want to look at Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, a a little bit there where it says this, that in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved in the heart of King Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm, throughout his realm, and to put it also in writing. So this is what he said, verse 2, The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of earth and he's appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem in Judea, at Jerusalem in Judea. Any of the people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judea and build the temple of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, the God whom is in Jerusalem. And may their God be with them. Verse 4, and, any, and in any locality or any location where survivors may be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold and goods and livestock, and with the free and with a free will offering to the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so it tells us after that of all of the people that they give these free will offerings and these things, and it tells us a little bit about who goes. And and, and the book of Ezra is considered by most people to, to be written by Ezra book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and some would even say First Chronicles, I'm, I'm, I haven't done the research to know that, but, but there, there's lots of, he's, Ezra and Nehemiah were written by Ezra in early days before the kind of canon of scripture that we have today. Ezra and Nehemiah were probably together in one book because it tells one fluid story of God's people in that place. We've kind of separated them just for understanding and kind of seeing the different things. But these books kind of go together. And so Ezra and Nehemiah tells this story, and, but he doesn't. He's not the one. He doesn't come into the book of Ezra until chapter seven. And what we find out in chapter two is the guy who's leading the people out of Syria or out of out of Persia as Cyrus gives this edict or this proclamation is a guy named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel takes about 50,000 people from Persia, which was Babylon. Remember, the Persians were overthrown by the, or Babylonians were were overthrown by the Persians. Cyrus gives this this decree or this proclamation. And and so he takes about 50,000 people out of Persia back to Jerusalem. And so the question, I think, right off the bat, kind of in a historical manner and kind of understanding what's going on, we have to ask, like, what? Why are they returning to Jerusalem, and what's the deal with the temple? And you guys asked the greatest questions. I'm glad you asked that because, because I want to go there real quick. Just, and for that, we're going to have to backtrack. And I've got a timeline for us a little bit, and, and we're not going to go through all of this, right? I'm going to start with Moses. We could go back to Abraham, but we don't have time to go through all of that. We'll start with Moses. Remember, Moses was led the people of Israel, God's people, out of Egypt, Right. And so Moses is Pharaoh and they were tra- they were in Egypt and let my people go and the 10 plagues and Passover and parting of the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments and then the promised land. Remember all those things. So that that happens, Moses, and they get to the to the promised land and the people of God rebel at that point. And they they don't go in the promised land as they as they were instructed to. And God sends them in the wilderness for 40 years. On the backside of that, the book of Joshua picks up. He's given them all these laws and all the ways that they should follow him and all those things. They've built the tabernacle and the places for God's presence to be. On the backside of that, Joshua takes the people into the promised land. They get in the promised land. This is Jericho, wall, walls fall in Jericho and all of those things. And on the backside of that, we enter what's called the period of judges. Now, that's that's 1400 B.C. to about 1050 bc remember bc it runs down to zero so 1400 about 1000 bc 1050 bc and so that's the period of the judges well that period ends with a guy named samuel right that goes all the way to to a guy named samuel and we enter he was the last judge and we enter from there the period of the kings the period of the kings that's saul right saul raised up he's not he's the people's choice for a king but he's not a great king god warns this is what's going to happen it's what happens and then God, God anoints David to be king. David becomes king. And, and then his son Solomon becomes king after them. We're going to pause. There's lots of kings after that, but I want to pause real quick there. See, David, when he was king, he wants to build a, a, a temple. He looks and he says, I've got this great palace and his palace was awesome. But God, you're still in this tent. You're still in this tabernacle. I want to build a temple. God's like, no, you're not going to build a temple. You have blood on your hands because you've been a warrior. Solomon, your son's going to build the temple. So David's like, great. He puts all the stuff together. He gets it all ready to go. And then when Solomon takes over as king, Solomon builds the temple. And he builds the temple and it's finished in 957 B.C. And you see that in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, that the completion of the temple. And it's incredible. The temple that Solomon builds is incredible. It's one of the wonders of the world. It's an incredible place. Beautiful, beyond our, 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 our imagination. And then if you fast forward just a little bit, 931, roughly, there's a division of God's people, and it splits into two kingdoms. It's a tragic moment in the history of Israel. It splits into two kingdoms. And the northern kingdom is called Israel. And the kings that follow after that and that kingdom, are it's a whole succession of these wicked kings that are disobedient. And that kingdom, the northern kingdom, falls in 722 to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, that's a... Uh, the, the Judah, which is called Judah, and that's the line where Jesus comes from. It's God's promise to the people. That's David's line. Judah comes out of this. That that kingdom established, and there's some better kings that come through there. There's some. There are some wicked ones, but there's better kings that come through there, and they last a little bit longer, and in 586 BC, they fall and are taken into exile by the Babylonians. Remember in Nebuchadnezzar, if you've been around, maybe you know scripture, you know Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys. That's that's Babylonian, that's Nebuchadnezzar taking the people. And, and, Babylon, and Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar destroy the temple. They take it down, flatten it. And it says that after a little while, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, they fall to another kingdom, to the Persians, to King Cyrus. And that's where we find ourselves in Ezra right now. We've got a whole timeline. It's where we find ourselves in Ezra right now. And Cyrus makes this decree that you're free to go back. And it's certainly a joyful occasion, right? It's certainly something to be celebrated. It's a great moment because people don't normally go back from their exile. That's not a normal thing that happens. So they're excited about the fact that they get to go back to exile and they're going to get to build the temple and all those things. But it's not surprising because as we just read in, just, in the first verse of this chapter, it says this, that, that, that to fulfill the, fulfill the words of God that was spoken through Jeremiah. So we got to go back to Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah say? Jeremiah said long time before, 70 something years before they going back, he says this in chapter 25 of the book of Jeremiah. he says, the whole country will become desolate a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the kings of Babylon for 70 years, but then 70 years will be fulfilled and I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the Babylonians and for their guilt and declares the Lord and they will and, and I will make that desolate, that place desolate forever. And in verse in chapter 29, Verse 10, right before that passage that we put on T-shirts, and I know the plans I have for you, right? That's a great passage. Verse 10, it says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years is completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise and bring you back to this place. And so here, here's a, just as we kind of just slow down a little bit, one, one of the other things, Isaiah, if you go back even farther than Jeremiah, Isaiah proclaims, he prophesies that it would be Cyrus that would, that would free the people of Israel after their time in captivity. This is before Cyrus is even on the scene. God tells Isaiah, Isaiah proclaims that this is what's going to happen. It's not a surprise. It's a great occasion, but it's not a surprise because God had already told them that this is what was going to happen. And I, I, the reason I, I want to slow down and say this, that we can, we can rest sure, we can rest confident in God's word, and we spend a lot of time in this moment is because, listen, God said that he was going to do something. And we think about 70 years. Listen, that's a long time to be captive to another country, to be under the rule of another group of people. But God had promised after 70 years, I'm going to come back. And all of this that's happened to you, I'm going to free you to go back to the places that I I took you from. And God did what he said he was going to do. And so we can have confidence. What what we need to have as we face these passages, Ezra and Nehemiah, as we look through Scripture over and over again, there's these moments, even as we turn to the New Testament, as Jesus is the fulfillment of so many prophecies, that we can hold tight to the fact that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do something. And we can trust that God, when he says he's going to do something, he's going to make something happen, he's going to do it. We can trust that what he says he, he's gonna do, he's going to do it for us. And so there's a lot of confidence for us in God's word that what he says he does. And when he says it, it's almost as if it's already done, even though in time, in the time of the continuum of time, it doesn't show up for a little while. And so I think about that, and I think what else has God promised that he's gonna do? What else has he told us that he's gonna do? that that we can trust in him to do. And and like he says that he's going to be with you. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, he says, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus promises the disciples on the edge of him ascending back into heaven. He says, surely I'm always with you, even until the end of the age, even until the end of time when I come back to rescue you. I'm always with you. He's not only going to be with you, he's going to strengthen you. He's going to help you is what it says. That he holds us. That he gives us wisdom. James says, "If if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and he will give it to you. He provides everything that we need in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that his mercies are new every morning. In Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, that his grace is sufficient and that he will return one day to bring his people to be with him. He promised the He promised the, the the people of Israel that as they went into exile that he was going to return to be to take to take them back to the place that he would taken them from, and he promised us that he was going to return to be with us to take us back to be with him. That he's going to prepare a place, and if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will return to take you there with me. So we can hold on to these truths. The second thing that I and, and this is a, this is a little bit of an aside, and I I I. I've planned it, so I'm not going to go too long, but I want, I want to make sure that you hear this because I think it's so important in light of what we see in, the, in this scripture. One of the things that I love about the, the, the scripture and, and, and things that you see when you start reading through the whole canon of scripture, the whole from Genesis to Revelation, is how so many of these things overlap in time, especially when you start reading the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament is not set up in chronological order. Right? And I, I think it's something that all of us should do at least once in our, in our walk with Christ is to read that chronologically. It's been a long time, so I'm committing to you that at the start of the year, I'm going to read through it again next year chronologically so you can join me in that at the start of the year. But it's something that, that is it's just a great practice because what you see in this is that as you're reading Ezra, you realize that Daniel's happening simultaneously or on the, on the front side of that. And as you read some of these prophets, Uh, that that you see in the later part of the the Old Testament, some of those prophets are prophesying, especially as you read in Ezra, you see that they're prophesying. So as you read it in, in chronological order, you can kind of see that all these things are happening together, that God's active. He's doing things. And one of those places that I think is so incredible is that, is that Daniel is taken. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are taken from Jerusalem. They're, they're, they're selected as a group of very elite people, educated men that are selected, and they're taken back to Babylonia, Babylon, and they're educated in this, in this place where, I mean, it's the upper echelon of education, period. It's the Harvard of the world at that moment in time. Right, void of God, it doesn't have anything about God, but it is the, it is the upper echelon of education, and then God inserts Daniel into the highest-ranking officials, in the in the in the, the strongest governments in all of the world for the next 70 years. Daniel's right there. Now, did Ezra know that? I don't know. Maybe. Did the people, the 50,000 people that went back with Zerubbabel know that Daniel was right there with King Darius and Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar, did he know that? I don't, I doubt it. I doubt that they knew that. But God had placed his man in one of those places that honestly, it was absurd to be in that place. And he was working his will through all of those things. All of those places, even though we didn't see it, even though they didn't know what was going on, God was, at, God was at work. And for 70 years, they were in exile, but God was at work the whole time to bring them back. And he would move in the heart of King Cyrus and right there at King Cyrus, right there at King Cyrus's side is Daniel. At Darius' side later on is Daniel. I mean, the... I say that to say this. We don't know who God has in places right now next to government leaders and political figures in the United States and all over the world. We don't know that. How could we? But I promise that God is not, he's not taking his hands off of what's going on in the world and saying, I've lost control. He's totally in control just like he was then. And he's working his will and his way just like he was then. And I'm not talking about a return from exile. I'm talking about a return to him that ultimately he's bringing us back to to be with him as he fulfills all of his promises. But we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. But we can trust that God's in control. And that when he says that he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He did it then and he'll do it now. Let's move on because that, that was more than I meant to do. Second thing that I want you to write down if you're following along is this that we can understand our calling from God's word. That we can understand our calling from God's word. One of the central themes that runs through the, the Ezra is, is the, the reality that God's word is, 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 is solid and, and sure, and, and we can see, you know, we can take confidence in, in God's word being sure and true. The second as we can understand our calling from this and, and really just to kind of, uh, kind of uh, 10,000 feet or whatever, not 10,000, whatever, 30,000 feet over this. What we mean by this is that God, when they return from this captivity, the first things that they do is they set up an altar before they begin building the temple. They set up an altar and they begin making sacrifices. And then right after that, they begin celebrating the festivals that God had established for his people to celebrate. Because you see what had caused them to go back into or to go into into this exile in the 70 years before, all those years before, is the fact that they had forgotten the worship of God as central They had walked away from his word and what his word instructed them to, that his worship was what they had been called to. And they had forgotten that and walked away from it and walking away from it. He said, listen, what's going to happen is when you walk away from it, you're going to walk in disobedience and I'm going to put you in exile. If you don't turn back to me. And so he does, he says what he's going to do. And he does what he's does, what he says he's going to do. I said that twice. That's weird. And they go into exile. And as soon as they return before the temple's built, they put an altar. they begin to sacrifice and they begin to worship we can understand what our calling in life is because because they they walked in faithfulness to it as as soon as they turned back as soon as they got back to that place they set up the altar and they begin to worship god because that's the calling for all of us we are his image bearers meant to reflect back on him the beauty of his image and to celebrate his glory and his majesty And before we move on from there, one of the things that I think is really important in in chapter three, what happens in verse three, it says, despite their fears of the people that were around them, they built the altar on the foundation and they sacrificed the burnt offering. I love the fact. That there's people that are around there. There's people that have been in Jerusalem while they've been gone, right? And those people don't worship the Lord. They don't know who God is. And even though they're fearful of what these people are gonna do and what they're gonna say, they still establish that altar and they worship God and they do what God told them to do. And I, I say that I pray this for my family over and over, almost daily. And I pray this for you. And, and you've heard me say this before uh, on a number of times. But I, I, what I pray is that these words become part of our process, part of our thought process on a daily basis. I pray that we too, like these people, would not lose, lose our heart. And when we face fears, that we would do what God's called us to do. And, and that I, So this is my prayer, that I pray that we would remain obedient to God's precious word, no matter what no matter when, no matter where, no matter the cost. That we would remain obedient to God's precious word, no matter what, no matter when, no matter where, no matter the cost. Just like these people that that returned from exile, these 50,000, they set up this altar and they begin to worship, even though there was fear that settled in their hearts of the people that are around them. They worshiped him no matter what the cost. Moving on, which kind of brings us to the next one, what we can expect when we follow God's word. We can expect conflict when we follow God's word. We can expect conflict when we follow God's word. If you go back to the passage, uh, it it starts in in some unexpected places for the people of God here uh, in the passage. It it goes, uh, it starts in verse 10. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord and the priest in their vestments and the trumpets and with the trumpets and the, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph and the cymbals. And they took their places of praise, to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, the king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord that he is good his, and his love towards Israel endures forever. Which is awesome that they sing those songs on the backside of being exiled to Babylon. But now they've returned and they recognize that he is good. And the people gave a great shout to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. The building hadn't even been completely built. It's just the foundation, and they are excited. They can't even hold it together, and they blow the trumpet's horn, and they, they celebrate, and they sing. On the backside of that, however, as these people are celebrating and shouting for joy, there's another group of people there, there's, and it says that they're the Levites and some of the older folks that have been around and seen Solomon's temple before they had gone into exile. And those people, rather than shouting and rejoicing, they're, they're weeping and are sad because this temple doesn't really match the grandeur and the beauty of the former temple. And, and I, I want to be careful, just real quick, just not, I, I'm not saying that these folks were combative, but there's a disappointment in their hearts. And that disappointment, I'm sure, for the leadership that have come and they've built this temple and they've laid this foundation, and they've planned this whole, this whole deal to celebrate it and they've, they're shouting and their horns are going off that when they see these other folks that are crying, they're like, well, what's going on? This is, this is awesome, right? They see the other temple, they, they, they remember back to what was and, and, they, and, and it's just not quite as great. And I can imagine, and I, actually I don't have to 100% imagine what this is like because I've been in a similar place. Years ago, uh, before we moved here, I was a part of a church uh, in, in my hometown where we was a re- revitalization and we came into a church that was, had kind of died and there wasn't very much happening there and they approached us and we made a, made a connection. And so we did this revitalization. And I remember on countless nights as we began to do this revitalization and we kind of remodeled and did some things. I remember specifically uh, one night when we removed a pulpit and some choir chairs. There were twenty-five of them, and there were four people in the choir. And we removed uh, the twenty-five choir chairs, and there were the four choir people that left that night crying, weeping, that we removed the choir chairs, and that big thing so you can tell I, I don't I just like this there were tears and I was like no this is awesome they're like no it's not awesome you don't know what was awesome the choir was awesome and I let they weren't combative they just remembered something that they had been in the past a place where they had been in the past but it was disappointing it was discouraging And I can imagine for these leaders who have planned this big event and and it's discouraging for them, for that moment. So the first kind of that 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 conflict comes in this discouragement. And and, and, and I don't like again, it's more conflict inwardly for the leadership, not necessarily for those that were were walking in, in in that time, but but it's it on the cusp of moving to another place. I think that we need to pay attention to our hearts. Because I I know that you're like, we're not gonna miss this cafetorium and setting up. But there's part of this that we're going to miss. There's part of this that's really awesome. And if we're not careful, we'll get over to this new building and we'll be like, ah, but you don't remember those days where it was like this. Like, I do remember those days. And we can celebrate what God did then and celebrate what God's doing now. And it doesn't have to be that that was better than this or this is better than that. It's that God was doing something and both were great. It keeps going though. There's more opposition as you turn to chapter 4. There's these individuals that were there in Jerusalem that didn't get exiled, and maybe it's the grandkids of, of what it says, thats kind of some, some family that's down the line, and they worshiped God too, but, but they come up and they're like, hey, we want to help. And Zerubbabel's like, nope, this is our deal. We're going to do this. We're going to take care of this. And, and, and they get mad, and if you look, they start throwing stones, and they go and report them. And if you get to the end of chapter, chapter 4, they've halted the work that's happening on the temple there in Jerusalem because of the conflict. Because they wanted to be a part of it and Zerubbabel said, no, this is ours to finish. God called us to do this, not whatever on, those, on some of that part of the, the, the commentary on that. But there was conflict. And I say all that to say this, that anytime God's moving, anytime God's doing something, Anytime God's doing something new in our hearts or in the church, there's going to be conflict. We have to pay attention to the conflict. We have to pay attention to that the fact that there will be conflict whenever we're following God and doing what his word calls us to do and being faithful to him and, to, and trusting in his promises. There's going to be conflict. Jesus himself tells his disciples and by extension us that we're going to face these things. Jesus' brother, James, says that Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because it is the testing of your faith faith that develops perseverance. Jesus telling his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. Listen, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. What does he say? That in this world you're going to have trouble. I want you to have peace because you're going to face trouble, and in the midst of the trouble you can have peace because you know that I'm with you and you know that this should not be surprising to you because when I am doing something, there's going to be conflict is what God says. The last thing is that when we can experience revival, when we commit ourselves to God's word, we can experience revival when we commit ourselves to God's word. Six times in chapters seven and eight, the phrase, something along these lines says this, for the hand of the Lord was with him or the gracious hand of God was on him. In chapter eight, it's, it, it talks about it being on them, on his people, on the, on the, on the leadership, as they, as they as talking about Ezra, as he's coming back to, to bring them back to God's word. They build the temple, but he's coming back to bring them back to God's word. and It was God's presence with God's leaders and God's people that was paving a way and providing for their needs. It was giving them the courage to follow him and protecting them from their enemy. If you go to chapter 7, verses, verse 1, it says, After these things, after the temple is, is established and there's been the conflict, after these things in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, and he lists his credentials and going back to Aaron. So he's one of the, he's, his, his credentials go back to Levitic. Uh, priesthood. And so Ezra comes comes to Babylon. He's a teacher well-versed in the law which, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king had granted him everything he asked, and the hand of the Lord was on him. And some of the Israelites, including the priests and the Levites and the musicians and the gatekeepers and the temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh, in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra was arrived in Jerusalem on the fifth month of the seventh year of the king, and he began his journey in the, in the first day of the first month. So it took him five months to get there. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, and the gracious hand of God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and the teaching of the degree of the law of Israel. Again, I said this a second ago, that one of the key, things, key themes throughout the book of Ezra and into Nehemiah is God's word. The faithfulness and the truthfulness of God's word, and over and over again, it's evident that that there's that the that His people, God, the, the evidence in that that God's word was central to their lives. It's evident that in the lives of God's people who experience this great move and the work of God in their midst that, that God's word was in a central place in their lives, that, that it, it encompassed their, their religious practices and their social practices and their business practices and their, their political practices. And in that, in that centrality of God's word, what it leads to is a confession. They lead to confessing their sins and then walking in obedient faithfulness to God's word. And that's what revival is. When we talk about revival, we talk about people singing for hours and hours and all those things. But revival is truly God's people returning back to God's word and in in understanding what God's word requires of us. We confess our sins and walk in obedience to God's word and, and God's way in our lives. And what we see as we continue to work through Ezra and Nehemiah is that's what God's people did is they put God's word in the center and it transformed their lives. But I wanna make sure as, as the band comes, as we close this this morning, I wanna make sure that we're not confused and we don't miss another one of the points that I think is incredible in this story and really is of the utmost importance for us where we are right now. I'm praying for revival. I'm praying that God's word would become central in the lives of God's people and it would move us to confession And that confession would move us to obedience to him no matter what, no matter where, no matter when, no matter the cost. But as you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, for Zerubbabel, for Ezra, and then even for Nehemiah, what you see is kind of like it's like a story where at the end it kind of leaves something to be desired. Or it's like a movie where you're like, well, you didn't finish, something's missing. It's not nearly as as odd. Like, that's a great story, but shouldn't there be something more that happens? There's a a level of disappointment. Zerubbabel, it ends. Ezra, Nehemiah. And, And the truth is, there is something missing. And that's the point. There is something missing for Ezra and for Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. There's something missing. And that's the point. It's ultimately the fulfillment of God's word and God's promises to his people was not a place or a building, or programs, it was a person. And we need to hear that more than ever right now because in three weeks we're gonna have our own building and if we believe that the point is a building then we've missed the whole thing. If we think that it's because we'll have student ministry and kids ministry and midweek stuff, we've missed the whole thing because the whole point was not a place or a program, it was a person. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. There is something missing, and that's the point because the ultimate fulfillment of God's word is not the power of his people to be obedient enough. They would always fall short of his glory. They would always fall short of his plan. God's plan was to provide one who would perfectly fulfill the law's requirements, and his name was Jesus. There was something missing, and that was the point because their sacrifice would never be enough No matter how much blood flowed from the sacrifices and the altars that they at the temple day and night as they sacrificed and followed God's law, it would never cover their sins. But God's plan was to provide one sacrifice that would cover their sins completely. And his name was Jesus. If we miss the point in all of this, if we miss the point, the point's not the building. The point is the person. The point is Jesus. The temple points to Jesus. He becomes the fulfillment. He becomes our peace. He becomes our protection. He becomes what fills his temple, now us, and gives us everything that we need for life and for godliness, according to the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. We can rest confident in his word. What he says he'll do. We can, we can understand our calling and from his word is, is to worship him. We can expect conflict when we follow his word and we can experience revival when we commit to his word, but we cannot miss the point. It's not a place, it's not a program, it's a person, his name is Jesus. He is the cornerstone that makes all of this fit together. And I, wanna, I wanna ask you to stand as we sing and just in response to him being that cornerstone What the builders rejected, he is that cornerstone. Let's sing this together this morning.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on a single sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Church Center app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.